This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Three Strikes and You're Dead, where I detail cases of murderers who were caught, sent to prison, and then inexplicably set free to kill again. This is part two of the story of Louise Pete. When we last left off, Louise Pete had just been released after serving 18 years for the murder of her former employer and lover, Jacob Charles Denton. There were some that supported her release, believing that she had been truly reformed during her time in Tehachapi Women's Prison. Others felt the need to warn the parole board that Pete's long history of criminal acts and violence should make her ineligible to walk free among the public. But on April 11, 1939, at the age of 58, Louise Pete walked out of prison to begin her new life. Perhaps she decided to try and go straight this time, because it seems she kept her nose clean. For a while. Or perhaps she was just biding her time, waiting until her name dropped out of the news, and she wasn't being watched as closely. Or maybe she waited until she found just the right opportunity to begin her career as a thief and scam artist once again. Before too much time had passed, Louise Pete found her next victims and was back to her old tricks. This is Chapter 3 in the Three Strikes and You're Dead series, The Story of Louise Pete, Part 2. Louise Pete, the woman who was said to have committed, quote, one of the most cold-blooded and calculating murders for profit in California history, end quote, was not released from Tehachapi Women's Prison without fanfare. She contributed to the hoopla surrounding her parole when she read a written statement to the press. She was still angry and bitter about her conviction. She wrote, 21 years ago, I pleaded not guilty to murder. I still plead not guilty. After having served 18 and a half years in bondage for a crime I did not commit, I would appreciate the opportunity to reestablish myself without further publicity. I appreciate the parole and shall not violate the faith placed in me. The press answered back. Mrs. Pete's release was soundly denounced in the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times. The Times characterized her sentence as too lenient and wagged their finger at the parole board for having been duped into releasing the known con artist. Quote, for Louise Pete's particularly brutal and heinous crime, she richly merited the death penalty. But a squeamish California jury decreed for her life imprisonment under the mistaken impression that the phrase meant what it says. Mrs. Pete obviously has behaved herself in jail, not from any goodness of heart, but shrewdly with an eye to parole. The worst criminals are the most apt to play up to their keepers and obey the rules most meticulously, unquote. Louise was freed in the spring of 1939, but she still had conditions placed upon her. She was required to report regularly to her parole officer to ensure she was complying with all laws and living a productive life outside of prison walls. Part of that compliance was that Louise had to be gainfully employed. Louise was allowed to change her name so that the stigma attached to her high-profile case didn't hinder her in her ability to find employment and gave her a chance to live without being harassed. She chose the name Anna Lee. Anna Lee was the name of her favorite actress. In several of her film roles, 
Anna Lee plays a woman who flirts with multiple men, sometimes even while she is married. Her suitors then compete with one another for her attention in these romantic comedies. In one film titled My Life with Caroline, Anna Lee plays the title character. The plot involves Caroline ending up with two men vying for her attention, although she is already married to a third man. She tells her husband that she cannot pick between her two suitors. Her husband then sets about to try and win Caroline back with comic results. It totally makes sense why Anna Lee would be Louise's favorite actress. She herself liked to have the attention of multiple men. She also had found a new wealthy man to woo her when her husband could no longer keep her in the lifestyle she required. She, like Caroline, enjoyed holding power over the men in her life. Louise had even bragged to her cellmates that three of her husbands had killed themselves rather than live without her. This was true for at least one of them. The others most likely took their lives after being connected to Louise's crimes and having their reputations ruined. But I digress. Louise, a.k.a. Anna Lee, now needed to find employment as part of her parole requirements. Since she didn't have much of a work history, she was assisted by parole staff, who helped her find a job as a housekeeper for a woman named Jessie Macy. Unfortunately, the woman died not long after Louise began working for her. Before you start thinking what I was thinking, it was determined that the woman passed away from natural causes. Let's just hope this is true. She then found employment at a canteen. It was 1942, and the war was being fought overseas. In the U.S., canteens were clubs where military service members could go to enjoy food, dancing, and entertainment, often before they were shipped off to war. There isn't much information I found about this time in Louise's life, except for one interesting tidbit. During the time Louise was working at the canteen, another woman, an elderly co-worker, disappeared. No signs of her were found, but her home appeared to be ransacked and the woman simply vanished. Apparently, detectives did question Anna Lee, who they may or may not have known was the assumed name of Louise Pete. One account said that Louise was the woman's closest friend at the club. Louise told them a story about the woman being injured in a fall and dying. Also, apparently, investigators didn't question this story and closed the book on the missing woman. Very weird story if it's true. But we have to remember the time when this happened. Women were still very much second-class citizens in the 1940s, and I would imagine an elderly single woman didn't rate much interest. If the police heard a plausible story from a, quote, good friend, perhaps that was enough for them to accept and turn their attention to other matters. The canteen job was just temporary, and after her employer's death, Louise needed to find another position. If you'll remember from the end of the last episode, Mrs. Latham was one of Louise's most outspoken supporters on the parole board. She voted for her release. Louise continued to report regularly to Mrs. Latham as a condition of her parole. In the summer of 1943, Mrs. Latham suffered a stroke. Louise was hired to be her caretaker. But only two weeks later, Emily Latham died. Before she left the woman's apartment, Louise took a gun belonging to Emily Latham's deceased husband. A definite violation of her parole, but for the time being, no one knew about the theft. Louise Pete had another supporter for many years, Mrs. Margaret Logan. 
Margaret had known Louise for almost two decades. She had stood by her when she was arrested and tried for the murder of Jacob Charles Denton in 1920. She had never believed that her friend was guilty of murder. During Louise's trial, Margaret Logan and her husband, Arthur, had taken in Louise and Richard Pete's four-year-old daughter, Betty. After Louise was convicted and sent to San Quentin, Betty returned to live with her father. But when, tragically, Richard Pete took his own life in 1924, Betty was made a ward of the court. She later married and had four children. By the time her mother was released from prison, Betty and her family were residing in Canada. Now Margaret Logan decided to reach out to her longtime friend Louise and offer her a position. Margaret's husband Arthur needed a nurse, and she thought Louise would be a great help to them. Margaret Logan was a smart and accomplished woman. She worked as a secretary for Standard Oil before meeting Arthur C. Logan, an importer and exporter. After they married, Margaret continued to work as a secretary for Douglas Aircraft, as well as an independent real estate agent. Although not wealthy, Margaret and Arthur had done well for themselves financially and were comfortable. They lived in a house in the coastal town of Pacific Palisades, California, located in Los Angeles County, just north of Santa Monica. Arthur Logan, age 74, was suffering from dementia, and Margaret needed help caring for him. When Louise first came to work for them, Margaret was still working evenings at Douglas Aircraft. She was also working as a real estate agent. She needed Louise to stay in the evenings to care for Arthur when she was at work. Louise was happy to take the job as a nurse-slash-companion for her friend. She moved in with the Logans in November of 1943. Louise had to submit monthly reports to the parole board. Margaret Logan signed them as her employer. But for some reason, soon after moving in with the Logans, Louise Pete began talking with her friend Margaret about having her husband committed to a mental institution. Louise offered to help her with the process, even submitting the paperwork to the court to be approved. Luckily for Arthur, the judge denied the petition. Instead, he agreed to have Mr. Logan hospitalized for an assessment. By Thanksgiving, Margaret thought better of sending Arthur away and brought her husband home. Maybe Louise hoped to be more of a companion than a caretaker and wanted to get rid of Arthur because she wanted to play a different role in her friend's life. A clue that may point to this is that her title and salary listed on her parole reports changed from nurse-slash-companion at $75 per month to real estate assistant at $100 per month. Taking care of Arthur would have been a more challenging and far less glamorous job than working with her friend on real estate deals. There is also evidence that Louise was trying to convince Margaret Logan that she could be a valuable asset to her in the real estate business. Margaret was looking to invest in some valuable property that she believed she could sell for a nice profit, but she would have to come up with a down payment plus loan payments until the property sold. Louise convinced her friend that she still owned property in Denver that belonged to her and Richard Pete. She said that after Pete's death, it transferred to her, and now that she was free, she had placed it up for sale. She was expecting payment on this legacy inheritance soon. Louise offered to help Margaret with the real estate purchase from the proceeds of the sale. Believing her, Margaret placed a down payment and purchased the property. Weeks passed, and Louise, when asked, told Margaret that the money had been delayed. There was always one issue or another holding up her money, Louise claimed. 
Finally, with the next loan payment coming due and Margaret unable to cover it, she gave Louise train tickets to Denver to have her settle the matter. Louise left for a few days, and when she returned, she still couldn't promise anything to Margaret. It was complicated, she said. Her husband Richard had killed himself in another state, and they were still trying to get the paperwork to verify his death, etc. In the meantime, Louise had met a bank employee by the name of Lee Borden Judson. She told him her name was Luann Lee and that she was a widow. She said that her husband had died 20 years earlier and had been a colleague of Arthur Logan. She was living at the Logans at the present time, she said, because he was ill and she was caring for him while Mrs. Logan worked at the aircraft factory in the evenings. She didn't tell him about her past record or time in prison, and as Lee Judson was from a different part of the country, he didn't recognize her from past newspaper accounts of her conviction. A week after their first date, Judson asked Louise to marry him. She then left the Logan's house and moved to Glendale with her new husband. Louise had to keep the marriage secret, as it violated her parole. She told Judson that she didn't want to tell Margaret just yet. It was such a quick marriage, and they were such close friends that she didn't want Margaret to be upset. Judson agreed to keep it quiet, and Louise introduced him to Margaret as her friend. Judson was a quiet, mild-mannered man and treated Louise very well. He was so smitten with her that he didn't ask her many personal questions and went along with whatever she wanted. He was just happy that she had agreed to be his wife, and he felt very lucky. In early spring 1944, Louise began floating gossip regarding Arthur Logan. She told neighbors and friends that his behavior was getting increasingly out of hand. She said that his illness was causing him to be unpredictable and violent. In her opinion, he really should be committed, but so far, Margaret wouldn't hear of it. Margaret was becoming very concerned about the upcoming loan payment, and Louise still hadn't ponied up the funds she had promised. If she couldn't make the payment, she stood to lose the money she had put down on the property, a sum she could ill afford to part with. So she was understandably upset at Louise for her part in placing her in such a precarious position. But things came to a head when the bank called Margaret Logan to tell her that a check for $200 written from her account had bounced. Margaret didn't know anything about a check in that amount and investigated. She found out that it had been forged with her signature, by Louise. Margaret was livid. She told her friend that she'd better make good on that check, or else she was going to report her to her parole officer for the attempted theft. It seemed that Louise knew that her goose was cooked and tried to scrape the money together, even trying to convince Judson's son, her new son-in-law, about the Denver estate inheritance. He didn't fall for it, and Louise was running out of time before she was afraid she'd be shipped back to the clink. Isn't that what they called prison in the 1940s? Or was it the pokey? No matter. Louise wasn't about to be reincarcerated. On May 29, 1944, Louise told her husband she was going out to Pacific Palisades to meet with Margaret Logan to discuss some business matters. Judson waited for his wife to return, but when she did not do so by 9 p.m., he called the Logan house. Louise answered and told him a terrible story. Mr. Logan had gone berserk and attacked Mrs. Logan. He'd bit her neck and her face, and she was quite injured. Judson said he'd come right over, but Louise told him that everything was fine now. Mr. Logan had been sedated, and there was nothing else to be done tonight. She told him to come the next day, as she might need his assistance getting things squared away. 
When he arrived the next day and entered the house, he observed a large blood stain on the living room rug. There was also blood on a chair in the room. Louise had cuts on her hands, which she explained were inflicted when she tried to separate Mr. Logan from Margaret. Judson didn't see Margaret, and when he asked her whereabouts, Louise told him she had gone to see a doctor about her wounds. Louise said she'd stayed the night to watch over Mr. Logan. The rest of the day was spent cleaning up the house. She had both the rug and the chair sent away for cleaning. Neither Judson nor anyone else ever saw Margaret Logan after May 29th. On May 31st, Louise and Judson took Arthur Logan to General Hospital, where she reported his attack on his wife and had him admitted to undergo observation in the psychiatric ward. Louise told her husband that she had been made guardian to Mr. Logan, but in reality, she had presented herself to the hospital staff as Arthur Logan's sister. That same day, May 31st, Louise cashed in the train tickets to Denver that Margaret had given her, which she of course never used. She used the money to make good on the bad check at the bank, so that she wasn't arrested for fraud and sent back to prison. Then she and Judson gathered their things from the Glendale Hotel and moved into the Logans' home. They would be house-sitting until Margaret returned, Louise told him. When Margaret didn't return, Judson inquired about her, but Louise continued to give him various reasons for her absence. First, she said Margaret was staying in a hospital for treatment. Then she was away taking care of real estate business. Other times, she would tell him that Margaret had been by the house when he was away at work, but had left again. Finally, when Judson became increasingly suspicious, Louise told him that Margaret was terribly disfigured by the attack. She had gone away to get plastic surgery and didn't want any of her friends to see her until she was, quote, completely fixed up. This calls to mind Louise Pete's earlier excuses about the disappearance of Jacob Charles Denton and the story of his amputated arm caused by the Spanish woman's attack. Denton, if you recall, according to Louise, was so embarrassed by his amputated limb, or limbs depending on the version of the story she was spouting at the time, that he'd gone away. Of course, her husband knew nothing of her past, the previous story she told when questioned about a disappearance, or even his wife's real name. On June 5th, Arthur Logan was sent to a state mental hospital by court order. He would die there on December 6th. When Louise was contacted and told of his death, she authorized them to turn the body over for medical research. She said this was in accordance with, quote, Mr. Logan's wishes. Louise took over the Logan's home as if it were her own. In fact, she told curious neighbors that she and her husband had purchased the home from her friends. Margaret Logan, she claimed, had moved to San Bernardino to be near her husband who was hospitalized. Louise hired a handyman to build a concrete wall about eight feet out from the house that bisected the backyard. She then planted flowers and bushes along the edge of one end. This would become significant later on. She also began to extract money from the Logan's accounts. A $1,000 commission check that Margaret had recently earned on a real estate sale was cashed. A $1,200 loan was taken out on a $2,500 insurance policy belonging to the Logans. For six months, Louise was able to hold off questions about the whereabouts of Margaret Logan. She continued to live in the Logans' home and was well on her way to getting her hands on their other assets, but in one small way, Louise's past would become her undoing. 
Louise was still required to submit monthly reports to the parole office. In December, a state parole officer was reviewing these reports when she noticed something odd. The June, July, and August reports were signed by Margaret Logan, but when she compared them to earlier reports, the signatures didn't match. She took them to her supervisor, who also reviewed them. They concluded that Louise was signing the reports herself, which was a violation of her parole. Agents went out to the neighborhood and observed Louise and Mr. Judson coming and going from the home, but there was no sign of Margaret or Arthur Logan. They began interviewing the neighbors. They discovered that Louise Pete had told them several different stories regarding the whereabouts of Margaret Logan. Agents also learned that no one had seen the Logans or any other visitors come to the house for several months. The parole agents took their findings to the district attorney's office. Because Louise Pete was on parole for murder, the DA in turn contacted the Homicide Division to look into the matter further. On December 20, 1944, four detectives arrived at the Logan home. It was evening, and as they stepped up to the front porch, they observed Louise and her husband through the front window. They were in the living room, kneeling in front of what appeared to be a strong box. Papers were strewn about, and they seemed to be going through the box, looking for something. The detectives knocked on the door. Louise opened it, and they identified themselves. She reluctantly let them in. They asked her where the owner, Mrs. Logan, was. They had already learned that Arthur Logan had died in Patton State Hospital. She told them that Margaret was away undergoing plastic surgery. Plastic surgery for what reason, they asked. She told them about the awful wounds she had received on her face when her husband had attacked and bit her. Why she herself had been wounded when Mr. Logan lost his mind, she told them. Quote, it was a horrible nightmare. I even got bit on the hand myself. It was an awful mess of blood to clean up. Mrs. Logan left the next day and went to see her own doctor. She comes back here occasionally, but she won't sleep in the house, unquote. Then they told her that they knew she'd been forging her parole reports. Why, yes, she had done that, she explained, but only because she was directed to by Mrs. Logan. She'd put her in charge of these things while she was away. She doesn't want to be bothered by these details, she said. As they continued to question her, Louise finally decided she didn't want to speak to them anymore. However, she asked to speak to a Los Angeles County sheriff named Jean Biscalas. He'd been one of the investigators on her previous murder case. She would only speak to him, she told them. They put her in a police car and transported her to the Hall of Justice to be questioned further. Meanwhile, a search began of the Logan home. While investigators were combing the interior for any clues as to Mrs. Logan's whereabouts, Detective Thad Brown stood looking out of the kitchen window towards the tidy back garden. He noticed something that looked out of place. There was a fresh mound of dirt near a brick wall that looked newly constructed. A row of flowers bordered the wall, and an avocado tree grew at the end of it, but there was just something about that plot of earth that gave him a strange feeling. He directed the others towards the spot, and they carefully began to dig. The earth was soft and gave way easily. Before they'd uncovered a foot of earth, they smelled the sharp odor of decay. Only 18 inches underground, and in the shade of the avocado tree, lay the decomposed remains of a human being. Detectives then drove to headquarters and picked up Louise Pete and brought her to the backyard where floodlights had been placed to illuminate the open grave. As they led her to it, 
Louise began to cover her eyes, saying, I don't want to see it. I won't look. What don't you want to look at, Louise? A detective asked. Is this Margaret Logan? Don't make me look, she wailed. She was returned to the police department and interrogated. She agreed to give a statement to Sheriff Piscalas. She wouldn't answer questions verbally, but wrote out a statement that was nine pages long. However, she didn't admit to murder, only burying Margaret Logan's body. In Louise's version, Arthur Logan had become enraged and beaten and shot his wife. She said she was able to calm him down by drugging him with sedatives. She told detectives that at that time, she began to consider the predicament she was in. No one would believe that she wasn't responsible for Mrs. Logan's death, she said, given her past. She decided to bury the body, have Arthur committed, and tell people Margaret had gone away. Her husband was also brought in for questioning, but Louise told them that he had no knowledge of anything. She seemed genuinely remorseful that he'd been caught up in the situation. When questioned by reporters about his wife, after he was told she was an ex-convict formerly in prison for murder, Judson seemed shocked and confused. He said Anna was the gentlest, kindest woman he ever knew. He was booked into the county jail until the investigation was concluded. After hearing Judson's story about the blood-stained rug, crime scene technicians processed the living room for evidence. Blood traces and a thirty-two caliber slug were found. A thirty-two caliber Smith & Wesson was found in Louise's dresser. Blood traces were found on the handle. It was later determined that the gun had belonged to Louise's former parole officer and employer, Emily Latham. Margaret Logan's remains were examined by the coroner. He determined that a bullet had entered into the back of her neck and exited out of her mouth, chipping a tooth. No bullets were found in the body. They believed that Louise had fired one bullet at Mrs. Logan while her back was turned. But unlike the murder of Jacob Charles Denton, who had been killed with one bullet to the spine, Margaret Hatton died quickly. Wounds to her body and crime scene evidence told of a much more brutal death. After being shot, Mrs. Logan fell onto the living room floor. Louise Pete, investigators said, then took the blunt end of the gun and beat her former friend and supporter over the head until she was dead. It was a blow to the skull that caused death, the coroner had determined. Lee Judson was questioned, and investigators decided to drop the charges against him. They were convinced that Louise had acted alone and without his knowledge, although some still speculated if she could have moved the body and buried it on her own. Mr. Judson was also told that his marriage to Anna wasn't valid, since Louise Pete had used an assumed name. He was released from jail on January 12, 1945. His son and daughter came to pick him up and take him home. The following day, Judson went to the 12-story Broadway Spring Arcade building in downtown Los Angeles and threw himself down a stairwell, killing himself. He was the last victim of Louise Pete. In May 1945, Louise Pete went on trial for murder a second time. The prosecutor's theory was one of greed and a well-planned murder. Louise Pete decided she was going to get the Logan's property and that it would have to be done by getting rid of two people, Mr. and Mrs. Logan, the prosecutor told the jury in his opening statement. This was to be done by murdering Mrs. Logan and burying her on the premises and keeping it a secret, and Mr. Logan by taking him to the authorities and saying he had bit his wife on the nose and ought to be committed. 
So on May 29th, Mrs. Pete gave Arthur Logan sleeping pills to keep him out of the way while she murdered Mrs. Logan. Then the prosecutor described how when the bullet didn't kill her, Louise then beat Margaret Logan over the head to finish the job. At that point in the trial, Louise Pete stood up in the courtroom and dramatically yelled out, It's a lie! The prosecutor also brought into the trial Louise's former conviction for the murder of Jacob Charles Denton 25 years earlier. He pointed out the parallels between the two murders. Denton's body was found buried under a mound of earth in his basement. Margaret Logan was found buried under a mound of earth in her backyard. Denton and Mrs. Logan were both shot in the back. Denton's body was not found for four months, Mrs. Logan's for seven. To explain both victims' disappearances, Louise Pete had said they'd been disfigured at the hands of another and gone away for treatment and or to hide their injuries. He even pointed out that both victims were last seen alive around the 1st of June. The defense tried to keep Pete's former conviction out of the trial, but the judge allowed it. Thinking her only defense was to take the stand and tell her side of the story, Louise Pete began her testimony on May 17th. Most of her testimony concerned Arthur Logan's alleged violence against his wife. Louise still insisted that Arthur had killed Margaret Logan, and she had merely buried her because she'd been afraid she'd be returned to prison. The trial lasted five long weeks, and Louise, for the most part, kept calm and collected, even smiling and joking with the press as she was brought into court each day. But when cross-examined by the prosecutor, who asked how long it had taken her to dig Margaret Logan's grave and dispose of her body, Louise snapped, Oh, Mr. Barnes, I don't know. The night was endless, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. In his closing statements, Prosecutor Barnes mused to the jury, quote, I wonder how many nights during those 18 years in prison this cruel, scheming woman sat awake in her cell, trying to figure out what went wrong in the Denton murder and how to commit her next crime, unquote. The jury, made up of 11 women and one man, began its deliberations on May 28th. Only three hours later, they came back with the verdict. They found Louise Pete guilty of first-degree murder. On June 1, 1945, Judge Harold B. Landreth handed down the sentence. It is the judgment and sentence of this court for the crime of murder in the first degree, of which you, the said Louise Pete, have been convicted by the verdict of the jury carrying with it the extreme penalty of law, that you be delivered by the sheriff to the superintendent of the California Institution for Women at Tehachapi. There you will be held, pending the decision of the case on appeal, whereupon said Louise Pete be delivered to the warden of the state prison at San Quentin to be by him executed and put to death by the administration of lethal gas in the manner provided by the laws of the state of California. Louise stood in front of the judge, wearing a powder-blue skirted suit, a lace blouse, and a black hat, while her death sentence was pronounced. She remained stoic and showed no emotion. On April 11, 1947, exactly eight years after being released on parole for her first murder conviction, Louise Pete walked from her cell at San Quentin to the gas chamber. Her spiritual advisor, Mrs. Snodgrass, chaplain of the Los Angeles County Jail, was by her side. Earlier, she had told Warden Clinton Duffy, quote, I am ready to die, unquote. Her last statement to reporters was, Now I owe the world nothing. 
As she was strapped into the chair, the guard patted her shoulder, saying, Take it easy. She smiled at him. Eighty witnesses sat behind glass to watch her die. It was the largest audience to view an execution in San Quentin's history. She looked directly at one of the witnesses, Detective Harry Hansen, and mouthed the words, Thanks for everything, Harry. At 10.03 a.m., a metallic clank could be heard as the gas pellets dropped. Louise inhaled deeply, breathing in the deadly gas as she'd been instructed. This was to ensure a quick end, she was told. However, it took a full ten minutes before her breathing finally stopped. She was declared dead at 10.13 a.m. She was only the second woman to be put to death in California's gas chamber. She was 66. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. What did you think of Miss Louise Pete? Pretty crazy story, right? But I swear it's all true. I don't know what drove her from such a young age to be willing to murder to get what she wanted. Was it the deprivation of maternal love early on? Some other trauma we don't know about? Or was she just a bad seed? I can tell you that I don't know for sure, but her story is fascinating. You may have heard that I have a new podcast. My new true crime podcast called Let's Talk About True Crime can be found on iTunes and it's being rolled out to other podcast platforms as we speak. The first episode will be released on Tuesday, February 19th. On the first episode, me and my guest host will discuss Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes, available now on Netflix. We'll also discuss a couple of weird true crime stories in the news and rate some tacos. Come along and join the fun. Do a search for Let's Talk About True Crime and hit subscribe. You can follow the new podcast on Twitter at Taco About Crime. You can find links in the show notes. Stay tuned to hear the show promo at the end of this episode. Next week, we'll finish up the series, Three Strikes and You're Dead, with another story about a murderer who escaped justice. You won't want to miss it. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. know what? Just like you, I love true crime. I love it so much, I started a podcast called Once Upon a Crime. On that podcast, I give you a new true crime case every week in a storytelling style. In my new podcast, I've decided to give you a little taste of something different. Because you see, I love to discuss true crime with others, and I don't get a chance to do that often enough. I started to feel like I was missing out on the conversation. We may be in the golden age of true crime. There are so many great true crime documentaries, films, television shows, podcasts, books, and events right now. And there's always something new and fascinating to chew on. Now, I know you have plenty of true crime podcasts to choose from, many in a discussion-style format. I mean, you can take your true crime with a beer, or a martini, or a glass of wine. But until now, you weren't offered true crime and tacos. And really, what could be a better combination? But seriously, I started this new podcast because I want to talk about the things you want to talk about. Each episode, I and a featured guest host will share, review, and discuss everything true crime. We'll talk about the best new true crime documentaries and series, breaking true crime news, 
the latest buzz about true crime and social media, and more. And I want your input. What are you watching and listening to? What are the cases you're discussing around the water cooler? What are the burning questions you have about all things true crime? Send me an email at esther at truecrimepodcast.com and let me know. That's E-S-T-H-E-R at truecrimepodcast.com. It might be read on the podcast and end up as a topic for our next discussion. You never know who might join us. Guest hosts might include your favorite podcasters, investigators, journalists, documentarians, even celebrity guests. The only prerequisite is that they love true crime and tacos. So take a seat at the table, grab a taco and your favorite hot sauce, and let's talk about true crime. Subscribe today. The first episode will drop on Tuesday, February 19th. Wait, Tuesday? Taco Tuesday. I'll taco at you then. <laughs>